You're listening to the Cornerstone Word of Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from Pastor Rhonda. For more information on our church, please visit cwol.org. All right, we are kicking off a revolution. Glory to God. A revolution of the love of God. I tell you, as he lavishes his love on us, we ought to let that love flow through us and lavish love on everybody else. Amen, we should. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4, out of the Amplified Classic. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, out of the Amplified Classic. Love, this agape love, endures long and is patient and kind. Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy. It is not boastful or vainglorious and does not display itself haughtily. It is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. It's ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails, never fades out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. Why does love never fail because God is love. It's what he's made of. It's his substance. Glory to God. He is this agape love. And when Jesus was walking the face of the earth, he was love in the flesh. I, I, find, I find this uh, portion of scripture so fascinating for several reasons. Number one, when the Lord uh, wanted to define agape love, he told us how it acts. Instead of just saying love is this or love is that, no, love acts this way. Love does this and love doesn't do that. He defines this agape love by, by showing us how it acts. And the, the thing I want you to notice here is these things are not feelings. They are decisions and they are actions. It would have been so much harder if God had said, I want you to feel patient all the time. How many of you know that would have been an impossible request? Because sometimes we just don't feel like being patient. Kind. Am I the only one? But listen, he didn't ask you to feel anyway. He told you to be. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Amplified Classic. And you can just leave it up there because we're going to go. We're going to tear it apart. Verse Corinthians 13, 4. Love endures long and is patient and kind. How many of you know you can endure long when you don't feel like enduring long? It's a choice. You can be patient when you don't feel like being patient. You can be kind when you don't feel like being kind. It would have been an impossible request and a much bigger request if he said, Rhonda, I want you to feel kind all the time. 
Are you serious? He didn't say feel. He said do. Just do it, regardless of how you feel. You can be patient when you don't want to be patient. You can endure long when you don't want to endure long. You can be kind when you don't feel like being kind. It's a choice. And aren't you glad he chose to do this for us? This is him. He is this agape love. He endures long and is patient and kind. Aren't we ever so grateful? Maybe you've not tried the Lord's patience like I have on occasion. But I'm so grateful he is so patient with me. So kind to me when I didn't deserve it. Put up with all my nonsense for years. I mean, one time I just told the Lord, if I can't understand why you're asking me to do something, I'm not doing it. I was like 14, give me a break. But still, how many of you know that's the epitome of stupid? I don't have to understand. I figured out a long time ago he's smarter than I am. I had an, I had an exchange with the Lord one day because somebody had been unnecessarily cruel to me. Somebody who should have loved me had been unnecessarily cruel to me. And then the Lord turns around and asks me to, to bless them, to do something for them, and I didn't want to. And I was mad because he just kept asking me to do it. I said, Lord, I think you get a kick out of making me do these hard things. Why do you ask me to do these ridiculously hard things? I think you just get a kick out of it. And maybe you don't talk to God like that. And if you think I'm being disrespectful, I'm sorry, but he's my dad. We have this thing going. We, we understand each other. And, and I said, Lord, I just think you get a kick out of asking me to do these ridiculously hard things. He said, Rhonda, I get a kick out of you acting just like me, like any good parent would. I was like, oh, I couldn't even be mad anymore. And you know what? I did it, even though they didn't deserve it. And you know what? It, it made my life better for obeying him. Look, he's smarter than we are. If he says do these things, there's a reason we ought to be doing these things. But I want us to look at it and understand it because it's really, really important. When they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of the law in Matthew? Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, to love or agape the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second greatest commandment is like unto it. You will love or agape your neighbor as yourself. If it's the greatest commandment, Jesus, the Son of God, the, the Savior of the world, if he said this is the greatest commandment and this is the second greatest commandment, then we ought to be doing what he said. But in order to do it, we have to understand what it is. All right? Scripture also says, John thirteen thirty five, this love is the number one mark of true Christianity. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. How is the world going to know you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Look, they ought not have to look for your bumper sticker. They ought not have to look at your Christian t-shirt. 
They ought not have to look at work when you bring in your 50-pound family Bible to read at lunch. If that's the only mark of true Christianity you got, you're lacking. Because this agape love is how the world is going to know that we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. Then over in Galatians, he says, faith which works by this agape love. Listen, I don't know about you, but I need my faith to work. I tell you, sometimes when I'm driving in traffic, I started to say exceeding the speed limit, but I know we have an officer within earshot, so. Let's just say there are times when I need help in a hurry. I'm so grateful he's always there. I'm so grateful when I call, he answers. I tell you, he's delivered us out of all kinds of accidents. One time I was headed towards a semi, and I don't even know how I got on the other side, but the first thing I knew, I was on the other side. I don't even know how I got there. You know what? It don't even matter to me. The Lord delivered me. My point is, we don't always have 30 minutes to repent. I need my faith to work. And if this agape love determines whether my faith works, then it is in my best interest to walk in this agape love. Oh, if that ain't enough, and really I don't have time for all this because we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. But the Bible says judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. I want mercy. I want God to be merciful to me. I want people to be merciful to me. Therefore, you know what? I sow mercy. You need mercy and forgiveness from me. You got it. Why? Because I want to get it back when I need it. First <sighs> Corinthians 13, 4, Amplified Classic. Love endures long and is patient. Patient. What does it mean to be patient? You know, it means something different than I thought. Patient. If I can find my notes, I'll tell you what it means. Enduring hardship, difficulty, or inconvenience. We know that part. Enduring hardship, difficulty, or inconvenience without complaint. Oh, he had to put those words on there, didn't he? Enduring hardship, difficulty, or inconvenience without complaint. Why are we looking at this? Because this is important and we need to know how to act. And it's equally important for you to know how God's acting towards you. The second definition in the dictionary is bearing or enduring pain, difficulty, provocation, somebody provoking you, or annoyance with the last two words, with calmness. Lord, Lord, we could have done without them last few words on those two definitions. I know we could. Maybe I'm the only one who could. Y'all looking at me so saintly. Why, Pastor Rhonda? This is just how I live. All right, well, y'all just be patient with me because I'm still a work in progress. And I want to say this. We're all just a work in progress. This is the standard to which we're growing. We're growing towards this. Listen, nobody's arrived. I guarantee you. 
I know all kinds of ministers at all different levels, uh, you know, and I know me and I know my husband and ain't none of us arrived. But this is where we're headed, to be more like him every day, to be more like him every day, to do better today than I did yesterday, to do better tomorrow than I did today. This is what we're growing towards. Enduring hardship, difficulty, or inconvenience without complaint. Bearing or enduring pain, difficulty, provocation, or annoyance with calmness. Mm. I won't ask for a show of hands. Love endures long and is patient and kind. We all know what kind is. You know when someone's kind to you. It's patient and kind. Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy. Now, oftentimes we use those two words interchangeably, but they're actually two very different things. The Bible is not being redundant here. Envy, that word envy means to feel resentful or painful desire for another's advantages or possessions. You not only want what somebody else has, you're mad they've got it and you don't. You're resentful that they have it and you don't. You feel painful desire for another's advantages or possessions. But you know what? Why in the world would we be that way? We're only that way. We're only envious because we don't believe God who said no good thing would he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What do we have to be envious over? The same God who blessed them is the God we serve who's blessing me. I'm in that same line of blessing. They may have got theirs ahead of me, but bless God, I'm in that line. And the God who gave it to them will give it to me because he is not a respecter of persons. He's a respecter of faith. And he said no good thing would he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So why in the world would we be envious of those who have something we need? We're in that line of blessing. Glory to God. Woo! We don't have to be envious of anybody. The word even says, you know, the psalmist said, uh, I was envious of, of those who do wickedly. It seems like everything they put their hand to is blessed. They have money. They're prosperous. They have, you know, favor with people. And he said, I was upset until I went into the temple and I considered their end. You ought not ever be envious of an unbeliever. Forgive me for being this blunt, but they're going to hell. Makes me want to stay. Y'all are quiet in all the wrong places. Woo! Love never is envious. Envy is resentful or painful desire for another's advantages or possessions. Love never is envious, nor boils over with jealousy. Jealousy. It's fear, the actual dictionary definition is fearful or wary of being supplanted, apprehensive of losing affection or position. You under, I always get in trouble when I teach this class in Love Walk 2 because I try to give examples and then I, it's just, yeah. Okay, but, you know, anyway, uh, 
Mark had a little, a little chicky friend before me. Oh, I'm telling the story. I'm telling it. I tell you, I get in trouble. <laughs> you not want me to tell it? Okay. And, you know, uh, we were at a meeting, a, a church meeting, and, and she came in, and you know... Everything she was doing was to get my husband's attention, literally. And she, just because, you know, they'd flirted all these years. And, and after we got married, she just didn't make that transition fast enough. You understand. Uh, and so, you know, I was watching her, you know, do things to get my husband's attention. And I'm thinking, you know, girlfriend. Anyway, uh, so they had a minister's, they had a minister's room afterwards, you know, where ministers go and have some refreshments and they fellowship and, she had gone back to her room in between the meeting and this going to this minister room and, and changed clothes and she put on a little pair of short shorts. And she come in, comes into the minister's room and, you know, my husband's in this giant overstuffed chair and he's got his hands hanging over the sides. But he's talking. He's engaged with somebody in conversation. Well, but I'm watching her because girlfriend done got my attention. You understand? Uh, so she, I watched her, and she walked by and rubbed her thigh on his fingers. And I, I'm thinking, you don't even want to know what I was thinking. He moved his hand in his defense. If he even noticed, I don't, he didn't give any indication he did because he was talking to somebody else. So he just felt something on his hand. So, so he says, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. He just felt something on his hand and he moved it. You know, he did move it, but girlfriend had had enough by then. I'm like, okay, I am ready to go to the room. And he's looking at me like, what? And I was like, no, we, I'm going, we're going to the room. Uh, how many of you know if, you know, envy and jealousy are two different things. Envy is wanting, resentfully wanting what someone else has, which may have been where she was. But I tell you, when some little chicky in a miniskirt walks up to my husband and says, Oh, pastor, why, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You are God's gift to my life. How many of you know in that moment, envy is not what I'm feeling? Oh, shall I move on? <laughs> He's pointing to his watch. <laughs> I really do got to move. Um. <laughs> but you know what? What do we have to even feel jealous over, especially to boil over with jealousy? I don't understand women who claw each other's eyes out over a man. I don't get it. Anyway, only from the aspect that if, if he's flirting with her, he's, he, he and I are in the covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we ought to be confident in who we are. Listen, why would he want a hamburger when he's got filet at home? You understand? I get in trouble every time in this class. I'm sorry, I do. Moving along. Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy. Be confident. He's, he's fortunate to have you. And if he's too stupid to know that, you probably don't want him anyway. Anyway. <clears throat> Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy. I didn't, I, I, didn't do, I didn't say a word to her, didn't do a thing. We just left. And she made the adjustment. She got married and it was all cool after that. 
All right. Not that you even need to know that. Okay. Love is not boastful. Boastful means to glorify oneself in speech, to talk in a self-admiring way, to speak with excessive pride. Why would it be wrong for us to be boastful? Because in putting ourselves over people, we are naturally putting them down. Love is not boastful because it puts somebody else down by comparison. It's not vainglorious. I love this. The definition is boastful, unwarranted pride in one's own accomplishments or qualities. Unwarranted, vainglorious, glorying in vain. You ever known somebody who thought they were all that and they weren't? See how I get in trouble with this class? You know, Anyway, boastful, you, you can boast over something that's true. I got the largest raise in my company. I am just killing it when it comes to my business. How many of you know that don't sound so bad? Unless the person you're talking to isn't doing quite that well. But it can even be something that's true to boast but glorying in vain just means you think you're all that in a bag of chips when you ain't necessarily all that in a bag of chips. Oh, I'll move along. Love is not boastful or vainglorious. It does not display itself, display itself. I love that verbiage. Displaying is, is showing off. It does not display itself haughtily, haughty. Characterized by an inflated ego and disdain for what one considers inferior. It suggests proud superiority as by reason of high status. You think your status makes you better or your money or your whatever makes you better than everybody else. Haughty. Conceited. Let's go on to the next one. It is not conceited. Conceited. Holding or characterized by an unduly high opinion of oneself. That's what conceit is. Arrogant. Having or displaying a sense of overbearing self-worth or self-importance. You need to, to be confident in who you are, but you don't need to come across in an overbearing sense with that. Do you understand? Arrogance is how conceit is, is how conceit comes out. Conceit is in here. Arrogance is how is acting on your conceit. It's like that movie, which <clears throat> I didn't realize they took the cuss words out until I saw an unedited version, and then I was horrified because in the version I watched, I didn't have any cuss words. But so I'm going to reference a movie. But uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, Sweet Home Alabama. I don't know if you've ever watched that movie. She comes back from New York, and she thinks she's all that, and you know, she's uh, she, but she's acting real bad towards all of her old friends. And, and her husband says, "You know, what does it matter with you? You act like you're better than everybody else." And she says, "I am better than them." How, that that you know, that's what we're talking about. Anyway, move along. Um, it is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated. Inflated. In my estimation, that's somebody who's full of hot air. They're inflated. Full of hot. Okay. All right. Uh, love is not. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. 
Now, we're going to stop at pride for just a minute. Pride. Feeling, this is the actual dictionary definition, feeling pleasurable satisfaction over an act, possession, quality, or relationship by which one measures one's stature or self-worth. Let me read that again. Feeling pleasurable satisfaction over an act, possession, quality, or relationship by which one measures one's stature or self-worth. Let me say this. Number one, pride's what got the devil kicked out of heaven. It's the original sin. He loves to get people in pride. Why? Because then it's all, it's all about me, Jesus. All this is for me. It's for my glory. We used to sing a song, it's all about you, Jesus. All this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It ain't about us. But beyond that, you have the only safe place to measure your self-worth and get your sense of self-esteem and self-worth is in being a son or a daughter of the Most High God. It's the only safe place, the only safe thing upon which to build your self-esteem. Why? Because everything else is temporal and temporary. Well, but pastor... My superior good looks should get me something. No, who gave you those good works? Good looks, I mean. Who who gave you them good looks? It's all God. Well, pastor, it's my intelligence. Who clothes you in your right mind every day so that you can have intelligence enough to come in out of the rain? You start thinking it's you and you're going to end up like that king who didn't correct people when they started yelling to him. It's the voice of a God when he started speaking. He took pride in that. And he ended up eating grass like an animal. His hair grew, his nails grew, he he lost his mind. He lost his mind. Well, Pastor Rhonda, I feel good about my business ability. Who gave you your business acumen? Besides which, your good looks could be one accident away from being gone. Your intelligence, one brain injury away from being gone. And I'll say this. We had somebody who came into the church, started getting the word. Their business started prospering. They were doing great. And then they lost their flipping mind. Went off doing things they ought not be doing. Totally lost it. Backslid bad and big. And all of a sudden their, their business went right down the toilet. And I was praying for him one day, and the Lord said, he mistook my blessing for his ability. And the Lord, he didn't say it, but I was thinking, and the Lord had to straighten that out. You're blessed because you're a son or a daughter of the Most High God. 
You have infinite worth and value because you're a son or a daughter of the Most High God, period. Period. There's nothing else by which we ought to be judging our sense of self-worth and self-importance because everything else is temporary and temporal. Well, I'm the pastor's wife. That gives me status. It doesn't give me nothing but responsibility. You know, sometimes people have to learn when my extended family gets around me, being related to me doesn't get you privilege. It gets you responsibility. Anyway. But what do you have that you didn't, you can't even build it on something good. Listen, my mother prided herself on her work ethic. When she was eight years old, she had uh, scarlet fever, which went into rheumatic fever. She was dying. I know, I know what time it is. He looked at his watch. Okay, I got to hurry. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's like, I didn't tell you to hurry. Okay, um, anyway, she, she had rheumatic fever. She was literally dying. And, and my aunt or my, my grandmother had sent prayer requests, letters to all these ministers that she knew, but my mom was dying. And my mom hadn't eaten for days. She was no longer able to have any liquid even. She was laying on the bed dying. And um, they were sitting by her bed making funeral arrangements when one of those ministers she'd written to was going to a, min to a ministry engagement and he was passing through their town on a Greyhound bus. And the Lord told him, this is obviously in the, like the 1930s, 40, 38, I think, 1938. Anyway, he got the Lord said to him, get off the bus and go pray for that little girl. So he got off his Greyhound bus, went and found the house, prayed, and came in and asked if he could pray for my mom. And he did. He laid hands on my mom, and my mom sat up, asked for food, was instantly healed. But the doctor told her she'd never be able to work. She'd never be able to be married. She'd never be able to have children. Her, you know, she could even, even if she survived, she would never be able to have a normal life. Well, heck, she did all that. She's got five kids, you know. Uh, heck's maybe not a great thing to say, but she had, she, she went on, had five kids. She had this career. But she prided herself on working hard, on her work ethic. I can do it. Watch me. She worked for a, gov for a, a government contract company, and sometimes when they were on a project, they had to work all day, all evening, all night, and into the next day. She, she worked 36 hours straight. She prided herself on her work ethic. And you know what's a good thing because she put a work ethic in all of us. But nonetheless, it's where she found her sense of self-esteem. Well, when she got older and her eyesight began to fail, and she realized that she wasn't going to be able to continue in her position, she started saying, if I can't work, I'm just, I'd rather be dead. I'd rather be dead if I can't work, if I can't be productive. I just told her, I said, Mom, what are you talking about? I don't want you to die. You're my mother. You have worth because you're my mom, because I love you. You have worth because you're a daughter of the Most High God. Whether you can ever work another day in your life doesn't mean you don't have purpose. Doesn't mean that, you, you know, you'd be better off dead. But she couldn't or wouldn't shift in her brain. And she kept saying, I'd rather be dead. If I can't work, I'd just rather be dead. Mark and I dealt with her. We had a guest minister who came, called her out in front of the whole church, said, if you don't make up your mind whether you want to live or die, that, that decision will be made for you. 
And you know what? My mom ultimately died of something stupid. She went home way too early. She didn't have to. But she had her self-esteem built in something else other than the fact that she was a daughter of the Most High God, which gave her infinite worth. Working hard is a good thing. A strong work ethic is a good thing. But you can't build your sense of self-worth on anything but God and your relationship with him because the rest of it is temporary, temporal. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, NIV. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, NIV. I know i got to hurry. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, NIV. If I could quote it, I would. Basically, it says, what makes you different from anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? God gave you everything you have and everything you are. Why are you acting like you're so great because you made yourself great? Everything we have is a gift from God. Your musical ability, your talents in any area, it's just a gift to you from God. What do we have to be prideful and arrogant about? And if we have nothing to be prideful and arrogant about, then we ought not be in conceit. We ought not be conceited, uh, arrogant, and inflated with pride. We ought not be boastful and vainglorious because everything we have is a gift to us from God, and we know that. And our sense of self-worth is only because we're sons and daughters of the Most High. So all that stuff that we already talked about shouldn't even be a factor. First Corinthians 13. We're probably at verse 5. Love is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. It is not rude. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. I learned a long time ago, God cares more about that weight person than if whether my soup is hot or my food came out right or they counted my change back to me correctly. I could really meddle, but I won't. Love is not rude. It's not rude. Unmannerly. And does not act unbecomingly. That word unbecomingly is not appropriate. Not in accord with the standards implied by one's character or position. There's a certain behavior that is becoming to a son or a daughter of the Most High God. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High God. And because of your high position in him, there's a certain level of behavior that is becoming for you as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Love does not act unbecomingly in a way that's not in accord with, with, the, with the position you hold as a son or a daughter of God. It is not conceited, arrogant, inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us. Aren't you glad it says that? How many of you know we can't do this on our own? But if you're born again, he lives in there. Love himself lives in here. What does that mean? It's in here. Love is in here. Now it's just up to you whether you yield to him or not. Whether you... It is. Some of you are looking at me funny. 
I don't have time to camp. Love, God's love in us. I'm so glad he lives in me. And I can just yield to him because I can't do this on my own. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way. Well, I have a right to be treated with respect. Sometimes you can get your rights or you can get your answer from God. That's all I got to say. Its own rights or its own way. It's my way or the highway. I'm telling you how it's going to be. You can either conform to me or you can move along down the road. How many of you know that's not how love acts? Reminds me of that if mama ain't happy thing. Come on, mama. Get happy in God. Anyway, love, God's love in us, does not insist, insist on its own rights or its own way. For it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy. I love the definition for touchy. Tending to take offense with slight cause. Oversensitive. Listen to this. Easily ignited. Flammable. Have you ever known somebody who is flammable and easily ignited? I know people that I don't want to go to the restaurant with them. Why? Because they end up showing their backside all the time over dumb stuff. I was in India, and they brought this man's food out in the wrong order, and he sent it back. I'm like, are you kidding me? Only God knows what they're doing to your food back there. Man, are you crazy? Anyway, love is not touchy, easily lighted, ignited, or flammable. It is not fretful, fretful, inclined to irritation of mind or agitation. Inclined to be vexed or trouble, marked by worry and distress. Let's go to Philippians 4, 6 out of the Amplified Classic. We really got to hurry. Philippians 4, 6 out of the Amplified Classic. I take three hours on this normally when I teach it. I'm trying to hurry. Do not fret. Love is not fretful. Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything. But in every circumstance and in everything, by prayer and petition, definite requests with thanksgiving, continue to make your wants known to God. You don't have to be upset and anxious and fretful all the time. Make your requests known to God and walk in his peace, knowing that he's for you and he's going to help you and he's going to bless you. And you don't have to be in an uproar all the time. Life is too short short to live full of trauma and drama unnecessarily, at least in my estimation. I think some people don't feel alive unless they're agitated about something. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not touchy or fretful or resentful, resentful to feel indignantly aggrieved at, indignant. Anger aroused by something unjust, mean, or unworthy. Love, it is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act becomingly. It does not insist on its own rights, it's not self-seeking, it's not touchy or fretful or resentful. 
It takes no account of the evil done to it. I, I like this. It takes no account. An account is worth standing or importance. How many of you know when somebody does something to you, the worth standing or importance that has is up to you? How much attention are you going to pay that? It's nothing till you make it something. Do you understand? How big a deal are you going to make out of this? It's up to you. Well, well, he, he talked to me in a way he shouldn't talk to me. Well, good Lord, if that's the worst thing that ever happened to you. Anyway. It, uh, it takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. The amount of attention you give something is up to you. Attention is concentration of the mental powers upon an object, a close or careful observing or listening. The amount of account or attention you give a wrong that's done to you is up to you. Next verse. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness. Injustice means a violation of another's rights or what is right, a lack of justice, a specific unjust act. How many of you know sometimes when, when something bad happens to somebody who did something bad to us, we think, well, they deserve that. Even if it was unjust, they had that coming. I think there are people in the world who call that karma which has to do with an Eastern religion, and we don't use them words, all right? But you understand, uh, your love does not rejoice when something bad happens to somebody, even if you think they had it coming. Uh, Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 out of the Amplified Classic. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 out of the Amplified Classic. Rejoice not when your enemy falls. Hey, don't get much plainer than that. Rejoice not when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles or is overthrown, verse 18, lest the Lord see it, and it be evil in his eyes, and displease him. This is old covenant, but still the Lord feels the same way about it. And he turn away his wrath from him to expend it upon you, the worse offender. Why? Because you ought to know better. Why are you the worst offender? Because you ought to know better. We don't rejoice when people are destroyed. We don't rejoice when people, you know, go through hard times or, or especially if it's unjust on their behalf. The Bible tells us not to rejoice in that instance. That's going to be funny, but I don't think I should. All right. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's try verse 6. I think that's where we were. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but it rejoices when right and truth prevail. When right is done and truth prevails, that's where we rejoice. Verse 17. 7. Verse 7. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes. It's ever ready to believe the best of every person. Look, I tell our pastoral staff, it is in your best interest to train yourself to believe the best of every person because it protects your mind. It protects your heart. It enables you to love everybody. I have trained myself over the years. I'm believing the best of you no matter how you act. What does that mean? That means if you're going to offend me, you're really going to have to be obvious and work at it because I'm going to assume you didn't mean that the way I heard it. 
Why? Because if the devil can make you, I, what do they mean by that? All the time. He's, he can keep you in turmoil all the time. Yeah, it, it does make me occasionally blonde. Er. A lady left the church and she said something to me on the way out. And at the time I thought, I don't even understand that. That's weird. But okay. And about three years later, Pastor Mark and I heard they were having terrible problems. And we were laying in bed one night praying for them, even though they hadn't been part of our church for years. We were laying in bed praying for them one night. And I was thinking about them leaving. And I replayed her words in my head and I got it. She was insulting me. She, she insulted me on the way out. But I didn't even get it. And I told Mark, I was like, I just got it. She was insulting me. And then I started laughing. I, I mean, I nearly rolled out of bed laughing. It took me three years to get her insult. But you know what? That was the mercy of God. Because if I'd have got it the first time, it might have hurt my feelings. Now I can laugh about it. Do you it's in your best interest to believe the best of every person. Now, I'm not saying stick your head in the sand and say, I didn't see them abusing my child. That ain't what I'm talking about. That is, I'm sure they didn't mean to punch me in the face. Come on. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? Because I almost hear somebody, well, Pastor Rhonda, you're going to make people put up with stuff they ought not put up with. You ought not be putting up with any of that. You can forgive them while they do their time, all right? Anyway. It's ever ready to believe the best of every person. It's for your benefit. And it protects your heart to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are, its confident expectation is fadeless under all circumstances. What does that mean? I expect you to do better tomorrow than you did today. I expect you're going to grow in God. I expect you're growing up. That's my confident expectation of all of you. We're, we're being conformed more and more every day to the image of Christ. Therefore, I don't have to give up on you. I don't have to worry about where you're at now because this is all temporary because he's, he's growing us up in him. My confident expectation is fadeless under all circumstances. You know, my marriage is getting better and better every single stinking day, even though that's hard to believe it could be. My hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails. Verse 8, love never fails, never fades out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. Love never fails. This agape God kind of love, it never fails. He, he defined agape love by telling us how it acts. If we started just, just putting a few of these in, into practice every single day, and we're doing better today than we did yesterday. Let's do better tomorrow than we did today. Let's, let's progressively grow up into him and act like our father. That gives God a kick when you act like him. They spit in his face. They pulled his beard out. They beat him with rods, and he still died for their sin. Sometimes we think we put up with a lot. Well, Pastor Mark, he walked right by me at the mall and didn't even speak to me. Well, maybe he didn't see you. 
Anyway. If we act more and more like him, we're lifting him up. And all men will be drawn unto him. It's the number one mark of our discipleship is acting like our father. We have some family characteristics like God. One of them being love. And he's in here to help us. What would happen if we're patient with people instead of being short with them? What would happen if we didn't feel it necessary to respond to every insult or every harsh word that's spoken? That is so contrary to our culture right now. Everybody's ready for a fight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mama. What if we were just full of love? Patience, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. What if we were, what a difference we'd make in this world. I freak people out when there's a line and people are hustling and bustling, and I'm just like, hey, hey, go ahead. I'm not in any, I'm not in any hurry. Like, well, how are you not in any hurry? It's the number one mark of true discipleship that we act like our Father. We're growing and acting like our Father. It's what makes our faith work. And it's the greatest commandment of all. It's to love God this way and to love each other this way. We will freak the world out. If we really started living this way consistently. And I believe, by and large, we are. But I believe we can do better even. Again, let's do better today than we did yesterday. Do better tomorrow than we did today. And I know I've set a really high standard. And that's all right, because there ain't none of us there. Every time I preach this class, and so I, some of them get on me. Just like they get on you. But that's okay, we're growing. We're growing. We hope you're inspired by today's message. If you want to hear more from the Word of God, head over to cwol.org. Check us out on YouTube or any social platform under at Seawall Madison. We believe God is working within you, and we want you to know Him so you too can make Him known.